forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. I'm your host, Jessica Crispin. This podcast is supported by its listeners, so if you would like Public Intellectual to continue and grow, you can go to patreon.com slash publicintellectual. This week, we have to thank Gigi De Mateus. She is the latest in our donors. In exchange for a small monthly donation, you can get a shout out on this podcast. You can get bonus episodes, you can get access to exclusive writings, and you can get a tote bag with my face on it. So go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. And thank you again to Gigi and to everyone who supports and subscribes to this podcast. The Oscars are over and we're going to talk about Glenn Close, who lost surprisingly or unsurprisingly, given her record of nominations and losses. She was usurped by Olivia Coleman uh, for her wonderful performance in The Favorite. But Glenn Close occupies an interesting place in American cinema and the feminist imagination from her performance as Alex, the out-of-control stalker psycho mistress in Fatal Attraction, to this year's The Wife, where she played the wife of a genius writer being awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature for work that actually she had done and he had taken credit for. So is this progress that Glenn Close was overlooked for playing a psycho mistress and is now overlooked for playing a dutiful wife? We talked to Suzanne Leonard, who had a kind of radical reading of the wife in the LA Review of Books. She has been on this podcast before to talk about her book, Wife Inc., wherein we also talked about Glenn Close. Um, so for this Oscar episode, which is airing after the Oscars, because that makes sense, um, we discuss the role of women in film, how it's gotten better or has not gotten better, and in particular, a film about a woman who chose subservience and chose to sublimate her efforts into her husband's career and now feels trapped by that. So, you know, hello, Hillary Clinton. It's been interesting to me how the narrative of Glenn Close's Oscar this year sort of lines up with the story of her character in The Wife. Um, (laughs) And it does, right? Like, it's a little bit like she's done all this work. Like, give her the award thing. (laughs) It's all this unrecognized labor, right? That she's been acting for all these years without much acclaim. And yet she's been brilliant, you know, in a number of performances. Um, you know, I would argue that her performance in Damages, the television show, was completely underrated. So that, that's just one of many, though. Which she did win. She did win an Emmy for that, right? Like, if I remember correctly, yeah, she's won. I think she might have. I think she might have. But I feel like it's not a lasting. People don't remember that as a lasting part of her oeuvre, even though for me it was really central. Yeah, I just find it interesting 
that um, the storyline, you know, every Oscar season, there isn't just the movies and the the nominees. It, there really are these sort of stories about who deserves an Oscar and, and the, the winning of the award seems so dependent on these stories of these people's careers and where they're coming from and everything. Um, but Glenn Close's... Uh, this year is, you know, the uh, that she hasn't. She's been underappreciated. That she hasn't gotten the recognition that she deserves. Um, I think, in the same way that the movie is about that, that she's been writing all these brilliant books, but she can't take credit for it, and so she can't get the award that she deserves. But at the same time, like both of them, uh, the actress and and the character. I mean, they work consistently. They get money, right? Like it's not it's not a hardship case. Um, but there is something about that still is just like, well, she's entitled to it or she deserves it anyway. And we're so, uh, the the need for that for us to be sympathetic to that sort of lack is interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, you know, I keep coming back to that famous line in Fatal Attraction where she says, "I'm not going to be ignored." Damn, mm-hmm. right. And at the time, that line was so horrifying, right? And of course, then she was ignored kind of critically, right, for for the role. And it's interesting to me that the only way now that she's being recognized and not being ignored is as a wife, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to as a long-suffering, right? As a long-suffering wife, um, as a helpmate, as a nurturer, as a caregiver to her husband. And s- still, those are the terms in which she's getting recognized, her acting career is getting recognized when, you know, in some ways you could argue that some of her other roles were equally, if not more complicated and difficult. Yeah. So the, the arc of, um, of Glenn Close's career, as far as being, I mean, it wasn't like she had been nominated, I think for, for two acting, uh, Oscars before, um, Fatal Attraction, um, and she's been nominated, I think, seven times total without winning. Um, but, uh, yeah. I, I mean, one of my, oh, sorry, uh, one of my favorite sort of stories or one of my things I'm really interested in about the way the story of Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction gets told is that she was playing these characters, these um kind of a much more traditionally feminine sort of women um, in things like, oh gosh, that film on Forgetting the Name of, where they all come together. It's like adults, um, a bunch of adults come together. Oh, The Big Chill. The Big Chill, right? And that she was, the producers felt like she wasn't right to play the Alex Forrest character because she was too soft in some ways. And, you know, in some of the media productions I've seen telling the story of her trying to get the role in Fatal Attraction, they really play up this kind of like desperate ambition, right? So she was sort of desperately ambitious to get the role of um, of Alex Forrest. And then, of course, that translates really easily into the role of a kind of desperate woman, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I think in some ways that that film was a real turning point in her kind of star arc or her arc as an actor because it did position her as somebody capable of a certain range that I think she wasn't thought to be capable of before and then even um and then even inspired some of her work in like you know as Cruella DeVille for example right so she was now suddenly understood as capable of playing much more sort of demonic characters than she had been before Fatal Attraction so I, I agree with you I also think that it's 
it's really interesting that she's had to come full circle in some ways in her career to get the recognition that she appears to be getting, you know, now in 2019. Yeah. And, and the role of um, Alex in Fatal Attraction was different when she signed up for it than um, what actually showed up on screen because of the ending, the ending was changed, right? Um, after, yeah. after the, the production was over it, for her, you know, she, her, the way she's always talked about this role is that, um, this is a woman who's been, uh, abused probably as a child and has no sense of self and, and it ends in this sort of self-destructive moment. But then in the movie, of course, it turns her into, um, a psychopath, uh, just absolutely crazed maniac murderer, um, which mm-hmm. seems like, you know, out of nowhere, but, um, but yeah, I mean, she's always such a more thoughtful presence than, well, you know, Michael Douglas or anyone <laughs> around her. <laughs> yeah. And she was quite vocal. I mean, it has been for years about, um, her dismay at the way they did change the role. In fact, for a long time, I think she refused to shoot the alternate ending um, that now is the famous ending where she, you know, breaks into the house and, um, you know, is killed in the bathroom by the Ann Archer character. Um, and I've always actually really respected her for putting up such a fight. I know it was a fight she ultimately lost, but the fact that she really felt that that ending was untrue to the character that had been built in the film, um, I've always thought that really speaks to her um, her meditation on her roles and what those roles are going to signal um, so again, I've always very much respected that aspect mm-hmm. of her, um, of her career. Um, yeah. So, so let's talk about, um, the, the wife. Um, mm-hmm. I, I liked your take on it. This is a movie that drove me crazy when I saw it. Um, and then when I, when I heard, um, her acceptance speech at the Golden Globes, it, it drove me crazy again. Um, so, but I, I enjoyed the piece that you wrote for the, uh, the LA review of books on, um, not just this specific movie, but on the sort of role of the wife of powerful men right now. Um, so yeah, I mean, so what did you think of the movie? Because I do feel like your take, you know, diverges from what the filmmakers thought that they were doing, uh, in, but in an interesting way. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks. So I had read the I had read the book, um, you know, many, many years ago and was to be kind of frank, so slightly underwhelmed by it because the whole kind of gimmick of the book was, oh, she had, you know, she wrote all the books, but as a reader, you don't find that out until at the very end. It's kind of, you know, the big gotcha. Uh, and the thing I liked about the wife was that we knew pretty early in, right? Um, particularly thanks to the Christian Slater character who's kind of nosing around and that it's just, you know, and the flashbacks, mm-hmm. right? And those kind of you know, you could argue somewhat forced flashbacks, but it just makes it very clear what happened. And so what I found interesting about the film is so they had to they had to say something very different or explore something very different than just this notion of, oh, this woman wrote these books and let her husband take credit for it, which is the question of why, right? Why she would have allowed this to happen. So one thing I liked about the wife was that though it never really gave you a straightforward answer on that. I very much felt like it was making an argument about her craft and that what she really wanted to do was write and she really wanted to write books. And in some ways, her marriage was the thing she could that allowed her to work and allowed her um, and allowed her, frankly, an audience for her writing, even though she was obviously unrecognized for having written the books. But it meant people were reading her words. And 
I think I thought that just spoke to something really interesting about a woman's privileging of her work and her intellectual product over the privileging of her marriage or her family, even though it would seem like the complete reverse, right? It would seem like she's privileging the marriage and privileging the husband's ego, but just somewhere. And I know that wasn't the intent. It's very much kind of like a resistant reading of the film, but I went away thinking, oh yeah, she wanted it this way, right? She wanted to write and she got to write. And so maybe this is a triumph in some ways. Well, yeah, I, I think, and that's what bothered me about the Golden Globe speech, um, where she, I, I, and it was very moving in, in her talking about how her mother had sublimated all of her desires into her marriage and all of these things. Um, but there's something specific about this moment of uh, American society that's the movie is set in that bothers me about this sort of compromise and the, and the way that the, the movie is sort of trying to make us sympathize with this woman and make her, make us think like that she had no choice. Like she was forced into this position that she never could have been a writer on her own and attained this position of power, which I don't think is true. Um, if only because this is sort of the era of, Sontag, Mary McCarthy, Elizabeth Hardwick, like really powerful literary women um, who were working in that era and getting recognition and an audience and respect. Um, and so to position this as, you know, she was forced into this into this choice by the patriarchy or what, you know, whatever it was going on in, in that particular movie. Um, and so I'm supposed to sympathize with her. Like it, it just, it was driving me crazy. Yeah. I think I read her as a bit more crafty and nimble because in some ways it's her idea, mm -hmm. right? It's uh, at least as I read it in the book, you know, her, you know, kind of milk toast whiny husband is ready to kind of throw another fit, right? And kind of give up and, and, and in his moment of anguish and self-pity, mm -hmm. right? But as I read it, she says like, wait a second, I'm a better writer than you, right? But, and again, perhaps erroneously was led to believe she couldn't publish her own under her own name. But I actually think it speaks to this dual agenda on her part, which is she did seem to want a marriage. She did seem to want to have a family. I think that was a, a genuine desire on her mm -hmm. part. And so in some ways, I think her decision allowed her to kind of have it both mm -hmm. ways. She got to write and she got to have a marriage and a family. And again, I mean, I think we're placing so much emphasis on this notion of public recognition. So because she wasn't recognized, because her name wasn't on it, because she wasn't the one who was getting the Nobel Prize, it somehow obviates the success or undercuts the success. And I completely get that, of course, right? But I read it a little differently. I, I did, I, again, I know this is an alternative <laughs> reading, but I, I read her as kind of working the mm -hmm. system, right? Working the system, and especially when her husband says, um, you know, I, you know, who took care of the kids? Like, you know, who rubbed your back? I mean, I just got the sense that the woman spent most of her days, even when her kids were very young and, and almost especially when her kids were very young writing. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, boy, isn't that 
kind of the dream of the woman who does want a career in a profession is to have somebody else take care of things. <laughs> See, like my my sort of socialist feminist perspective immediately is like, well, who you know, like that's a corrupt <laughs> that's a corrupt desire. <laughs> like to just pay somebody else to, you know, to, to to take care of the domestic work so that you can you know, that's what that's what patriarchy is. That's what men have been doing for forever. But um, like, I, I, I do like your reading and I hadn't thought of it that way. Like to me, to me, it was a plea for sympathy for, I don't know, like a very sort of self-serving narrative about um, uh, people who chose not to sort of participate in this moment of radical change um, in order to sort of retain comfort. Um, and my mom was one of those women, you know, like she was, she was, uh, 16 years old, uh, in 1968. So, um, seeing radical change around her, seeing the blossoming of feminism and her deciding nope housewife, right? Like, um, I think that's an interesting, choice to make and rarely explored within women's literature. So this, but this self-serving narrative of like, I could have been a genius if only I'd, you know, but I just didn't, wasn't given the opportunity. Um, that to me, like that's the movie that I was watching and that was, that's what was sort of driving me crazy. But if it had been like sort of more overt in this like Claire Underwood kind of way, you know, um, a, a seizing of power or like a gone girl thing, um, where it's just like, just really on the surface, I probably would have loved it. <laughs> it could have been like high camp. Yeah. <laughs> there is a way I'm turning a, this a bit into the movie that I want it to be. I mean, I will say I had this reading of it from viewing it once. And then I went back and watched kind of select scenes. And I was looking for this quote that would completely clarify, you know, what her says, like, I stayed married to you so I could write, which as far as I could tell, she actually doesn't say. But I still believe strongly that that is a potential reading because I also think in some ways that story of like long suffering wife who chooses to stay with husband out of comfort and because, you know, she doesn't want to kind of rock the apple cart feels so anachronistic to me in, you know, in 2018 when the film mm -hmm. came out. And, and not very interesting. And, and, and I think in some ways, that's probably what you're responding to. You're sort of saying, hey, I don't think that's, that's a, not a very interesting story. And I don't think that's a very interesting mm -hmm. story either. But I think that the fact that this film came out when it did, and you had Glenn Close playing the wife, right? She doesn't even get a name mm -hmm. in the title, right? Is asking us to really question that, right? Like, I think this notion of like, that she is the wife is almost like tongue in cheek on some level, because she's actually a Nobel Prize winning mm -hmm. author. That's who she is. Yeah, the guy, Jonathan Price, is in a lot of ways the wife. Um, yeah, because mm -hmm. he's he's taking care of the kids and doing the domestic labor while she writes her genius books. It's just that he takes credit for them. But um but yeah, I mean, so you in the in this piece you sort of relate it to other sort of um politically or otherwise advantageous marriages or convenient marriages, I guess. Um, particularly mm -hmm. under the lens of um me too and the wives of these men who were have been um accused of misdeeds and have either stood by their side or or not um but um there was that line that from 
I think it was Georgina Chapman um, who said that, uh, you know, wives of these men are, are not uh, given sympathy. And you're like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that you deserve it. Woman <laughs> Aberdeen said it in like her cameo appearance in the Vogue profile of Georgina okay, yeah. Chapman. So real sort of soul sister here, you know. Um, but I think it is still sort of like a taboo um, part of this conversation, which is um, complicity, um, except for yeah. like Ivanka Trump, some reason, like she gets that. But a lot of these other women, it's 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 not. There's not an outpouring of sympathy, but there's also not an outpouring of like, look, <laughs> investigating or or even being able to question like the the choices that led up to them and how much did they know and how was that useful to them and that sort of thing, which you sort of talk about. Yeah, I mean, I really think that this, I think we're just so used to placing the wife in terms of this kind of like victimized mm -hmm. dupe, right? And, and we, and I think a little bit more nowadays, there is a bit more recognition of complicity. But I think what I'm also demanding is a bit more accountability, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, particularly for these women who, who benefited enormously from their husband's kind of business dealings or political connections. Um, and again, I think that's partly in some ways why I am advocating for the wife is I don't think, I mean, I'm not saying we should sort of celebrate her exactly, but I do think we should see her as somebody capable of making very calculating mm -hmm. decisions that in some ways were very self-serving. And I think that's my point about a lot of the Me Too wives is I, I feel like in just assuming that they had the wool pulled over their eyes, we're not really taking seriously the fact that, you know, these were ambitious women who gained a lot from these marriages and frankly have lost a lot from the demise of their mm -hmm. partners. It does seem like even with all that we sort of know um, about the Trump administration, there are a lot of people who seem desperate to believe that Melania um, is either a dupe or like undermining, like a sabotage, <laughs> a saboteur of the Trump administration, like with her coded messages yeah. of like, yeah, desperately trying to read coded messages into like her, her clothing choices. Yeah, I, but I mean, what? So, what is the the reluctance to see her as being like a part of this? Like, why do we want so much to give her the benefit of the doubt? You know, in some ways, I think because this notion of the political wife has changed so much, right? I mean, sort of starting with Hillary Clinton and thinking about kind of her own goals and ambitions. Um, and then I think, you know, I'm reading Michelle Obama's autobiography right now. And, and I think just the way that Michelle Obama sort of changed this notion of, you know, first lady to be somebody who does have her own ambitions, goals, you know, career. And, you know, Michelle Obama has been so candid about, you know, her own ambitions and them having to take a backseat to her husband's, but how difficult that was, right? So that's sort of, 
that downshifting of female ambition that was expected of all wives, I think, prior to Hillary Clinton in some way, if they even had, you know, many political aspirations, which many of them didn't, right? So I think we've had a paradigm shift in the way we think about political wives and the way we think about first ladies. And so to have Melania come and sort of say, no, 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 I'm just a throwback, right? I'm just a throwback to the, you know, the the Barbara Bushes, right? <laughs> Who, you know, are, are just sort of content to like care about libraries or something. Nothing wrong with that. But um, the, I think it, it feels really anachronistic, right? What Melania Trump is trying to say, right? Also, given the fact that she was a supermodel, right? It just feels mm-hmm. disingenuous. Right. And so I think that there's this dissonance here that when we're looking because it doesn't make any sense. And so we're looking for like tangible evidence of this dissonance, which is to say, like, oh, you're batting your husband's hand away or you're, you know, you're you're making signals through your clothing because it just doesn't read authentic anymore. Because I think in some ways of the of the other first ladies that we've had. And frankly, and I'm sorry to say this, but but just because Trump is such a like misogynist <laughs> pig, right? It's <laughs> I think it's really hard in some ways for feminists just to see her as being completely complicit in that. Like she must want to revolt because otherwise it says something even more terrible in some ways about like what women are willing to support, put up with, endorse, and stand behind. I mean, yeah, Hitler had a lot of girlfriends. Like I don't And I think that that's the part of this that I I don't understand is like, it's not like, um, you know, anytime we have a a sort of uh, neo-Nazi revival, people start, you know, if they only had the love of a good woman, I was like, there are women in the neo-Nazis too. But, uh, but anyway, like this. Yeah, the the sort of humanizing effect of of, of the the fe- feminine partner um, is so weird to me. But I did want to, since you brought up Michelle Obama, what did you th- what did you think of the book? Like, I I think I understand what you're saying about you know her complicating uh, the role of the first lady, but I think I wanted I I was disappointed by the lack of candor about what exactly that means. Like it it just felt still too political um, and not angry, (laughs) I guess. (laughs) I'm not finished with it. So I, I don't want to speak out of turn. There is a way where it feels a bit, I am enjoying it, but it does feel a bit too Pat in this way where she, she, I mean, I'm kind of in the part where, you know, Barack is deciding to run for president and she says, you know, I would go to Iowa, but I was committed to like putting my kids to bed at, you know, eight o'clock every night. So I would make sure that I was home for that. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with the woman sort of privileging, you know, her children and, you know, her kids were young at that point. But I think I wanted more. I wanted a little bit more of an exploration of the thing I said I was interested in, which is what did it mean for her to have to downshift mm-hmm. her ambitions? And the fact that it wasn't just for the eight years that, he's right. in the White, that he was in the White House. Mm-hmm. It's forever, right? It's like she will always be Michelle Obama, the former first lady. And that will always be the most important thing. In yeah. And I done. think that's what kind of I wanted the memoir, you know, I mean, my own sort of wish fulfillment about, you know, uh, somebody that I don't know, actually know, but I have an emotional investment <laughs> in, what, in the same way. Um, but 
you know, I, I guess I, I was sort of wanting her this to be the uh, shedding of the sort of the first lady prettiness or shell or whatever to to admit like I had to uh, remove all these sorts of things from my ambition and from my personality because of expectations of behavior. And now fuck it. You know, like I kind of wanted a fuck it moment in the book and it never came. And I was a little disappointed. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, you know, I wonder if on some level to kind of circle us back to the wife, that climactic scene at the end where she's about to, you know, divorce him. I did find that satisfying, right? Like, because it seems like that character yeah, does have yeah. a fuck it moment, right? And bring up all his infidelities and, you know, the fact that he, that she's using them. But, you know, I, this is not related to Michelle Obama, but I do think that climatic fight in the wife is so interesting because of that question where he says, like, you took my life and you made it art. And that question of, for her, like, who, kind of whose story was this mm -hmm. to tell? And, and I think that's one thing that's sort of interesting about the Michelle Obama book, at least as far as I see it, is she's trying to both tell her story and tell her husband's, right? Because um, I'm finding myself, you know, admittedly very nostalgic for Barack Obama. But part of the reason I'm so nostalgic, it's not just because of the current president we have, but because of the way seeing him through her eyes. You know, I think the book is a lot about why he thought he could affect such change. And so as much as it's her story, it's also his story through mm -hmm. her eyes. And there was always, you know, especially with the divide between the Clintons and the Obamas, there would always seem something mm -hmm. transactional, whether or not the, this is um, fantasy or illusion on either on either side of this, but something sort of transactional about the Clinton marriage, but something sincere about the Obamas. And both of these could have been performances mm -hmm. um, or neither of them could have been performances. And we just read into these things. It's it's impossible to tell. But, you know, watching The Wife, I was also sort of thinking like this is a movie about Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Um, about like a, this sort of, you know, especially when she says, uh, you know, somebody asks what she does and she says, I'm a maker of Kings or something like that. Um, it was just like, this is, this is a Hillary Clinton movie. Um, and the, the burning resentment that she's not up on the stage. Like I do feel sort of still from Hillary Clinton, um, and, and from her sort of supporters, like this resentment that, um, she had sort of compromised, uh, herself in all these ways in order to get to a place and then she didn't even get to the place um, is is sort of interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just something I realized I was doing a presentation um, uh, based on my um, LA Review of Books piece and so I was in a, it was a, a very visual presentation so I was thinking about the optics and I was thinking about the optics of the kind of male press conference where he mm -hmm. admits, you know, having there. And I found, you know, that famous still where, you know, um, Bill Clinton says, you know, I didn't have sexual relations with that woman and Hillary Clinton is in the background. Right. And one of the only stills I could find where she is the one giving a speech and Bill is very visible in the background is mm. her concession speech. Right. Went on in 2016. And it was really interesting to me just the fact that the t only time she gets to appear in front of the microphone on her own terms with her supposed husband support or her husband's support behind her is when she's, you know, conceding the election mm -hmm. that everybody thought she was going to win. So it was 
incredibly like affecting on a visual mm-hmm. level. I yeah, me. that's true. I guess you know, all the other sort of visuals I have of, of during her campaign is just like him saying all the wrong things to the media and having to, and everybody having to do damage control um, at, at her events um, based on his inability to keep his mouth shut. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Um, did you happen to see the movie Vice? No, I'm sorry, I haven't. What? Um, Um, no, it's just such a. It's also such a fascinating wife character, and and Amy Adams is um, nominated as well for playing uh, Cheney's wife. Um, And the the sort of conversations they have in the movie are much more sort of, um, and and of course they're they're fictionalized, and nobody knows what actually happened, Um, but her ambition, you know, her, her big speech to, uh, to Dick Cheney after his, you know, third DUI or whatever, and, uh, his nowhere job that he has is, you know, did I marry the wrong man? I can't be the mayor, but you can. And so tell me if I married the wrong person. Um, and it's interesting to me, I mean, in a completely unsubtle way, um, but this conversation about women using their husbands for power is becoming more of the conversation, less in a like direct Lady Macbeth, crazy psycho kind of way, but just in the the compromises of how we deal with um, oppression and and uh, our lowered position in society. Um, but then also how we use that these marriages. Uh, become destructive, the the search of power for each other, a sort of selfish couple, narcissistic, you know, Underwood kind of marriage, um, the damage that that kind of mentality does. I think it's interesting that this seems to be emerging in the pop culture in all these different ways, including on House of Cards. Yes, I would agree. And, you know, um, one of my other review books article came out you know that was also the week that julie chen who now goes by julie chen moonves right had kind of reaffirmed that name and like the new season of big brother and you know the way in which there's so much kind of competition it seems like between you know these husbands and wives but also in that case this attempt to kind of lend her Mm -hmm. credibility to him and to, you know, sort of change her op his optics with her relatability. Um, I thought was really interesting because ultimately it's still a power grab Mm -hmm. for them as a couple, right. Even though he's been obviously, um, you know, widely discredited um, and, you know, is now I think fighting for a severance severance package that um, has been removed from him after he was removed from CBS. But I think that it's, I would agree with you that we're still locked in this dynamic where somehow the the marriage has to be there in order for like the the power conversations to happen. Um, But, but I think the, the calculus is changing in really interesting ways. Um, So you mentioned uh, that, you know, Glenn Close sort of became prominent for this crazy mistress role. And now she's probably going, I mean, I foolishly scheduled this so that we're talking about this right before the Oscars, but it won't air until after. So it could be Lady Gaga could like take, you storm the stage, steal the award and run away. But um, uh, we'll just pretend like we know that it's probably going to Glenn Close. 
but um uh the these roles that she finds the the sort of the most uh prominence for the most uh interest and critical acclaim is are still these roles that are attached to men like it's still essentially playing either the mistress or the wife it's still um they only exist because the man is there in the story too um do you like how how strong is the hold of this sort of these roles of the partner and the wife and the, and the mistress, like, do you see popular culture sort of moving away from it? Because I, I worry that I, that I don't. <laughs> I think I've made my career on the fact that it's never seems to be. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's it. And, and the fact that both of these roles, the kind of her entire identity exists in relation like that is all she is as a relational figure in relation to men right in both of those films mm -hmm. um and yeah i i want to see it changing you know and, and there's a way in which and i kind of said this before i think part of the reading i'm trying to offer of the wife is to kind of see it in the 21st century because in some ways it, it feels really troubling to me like is this the only story we can still tell about women mm. so the only way i can justify it and rationalize it is to say no we're telling a different story about about wives and about kind of um calculated ambition right mm. um because otherwise i think you're absolutely right we're just stuck back in the same old tired dynamic um where that's sort of the way we want to think about women's lives Right. And that's, you know, one of the arguments of my book or my book um, on wives is that this becomes the only way we like know how to talk about women, even if we want to talk about other things, even if we want to talk about female friendships, like the real housewives, we have to call them wives. Mm -hmm. So we don't know, I think, how to have nuanced conversations about other things than women's relational identities. And yeah, I find it pretty depressing <laughs> that, <laughs> that it changed all that much. And if anything, to give her the Oscar for the role of the wife seems to me even more backwards than giving her than giving her the Oscar for the role as the mistress. If you get my drift. Oh yeah, no, I'm. You know, last time we talked, I had I gave my whole radical reading of Fatal Attraction, which I still stand by. Um, which is that she's the hero of the movie, but um, it's. It's actually, if I could just interject, mm -hmm. I've been teaching that film. I teach it every year. And more and more, Jessa, the students are coming around to your viewpoint. That's wonderful. Justice for Alex. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do think with an increasingly savvy kind of audience, right? With an increasingly savvy audience, the injustices sort of perpetuated against her, the way the narrative sort of works against her and, you know, her legitimacy and like a lot of what she does, not all, but her legitimacy and a lot of what she does is, I think, really being recognized. So I will say maybe the stories aren't changing so much, but I think our ability to critically read those stories and, and sort of read between the lines of those stories, which is kind of what I'm trying to do with the wife in some ways, mm -hmm. too. Um, I think there is there's some movement there. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.